Morning. Welcome to another edition of Talking MMT, where I basically talk MMT and or read from literature from MMT uh, authors like Stephen Kelton, Warren Mosler, and others. Uh, I am focusing right now on Stephen Kelton's book, uh, Deficit Myth. Uh, right now, I'm in Chapter 7, I believe, uh, and it would be the uh page 224 now i've been flubbing a lot and i'll try not to but i can't guarantee anything obviously but whatever uh either way you're getting some honest uh reporting on my part uh and starting with americans who don't make a lot simply don't feel the feel that their stories and struggles register with the policymakers and politicians and government or that participation you know i mean Participation in U.S. democracy is even worth bothering with, and they may set way. They may, they, again, they may well be right. A striking political science paper in 2014 found that, while there is a fair amount of overlap between the political preferences of everyday Americans and the political uh, preferences of rich elites, when the two sets of interests diverge. Is almost of uh, invariably the yeah invariably the rich whose desires are served by the political system. Functionally, the participation of most Americans in our democracy often seems irrelevant, which raises the question of whether meaningful democracy is even possible in a country with such vast economic inequalities. Democrats often complain that the problem with the wealthiest Americans is that they're not paying their fair share of taxes, and taxes are definitely part of the story. But they're far from the whole story. MMT does not take the Robin Hood approach of taxing the rich to get to the poor. As we'll see, our federal taxes don't pay for anything, including raising anyone's standard of living. At the same time, the myth of the Uncle Sam deficit is cause for concern helps drive our real, uh, very real democracy deficit. If our elected leaders believe they must either be go begging to the rich before they can spend money on the public good, or that they must fight the rich for that same money, then of course the fables and ticks and quite 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 exotic. Yes, uh, political desires of, we, of our richest citizens will become the prim primary obsession of our government. But taxes are important in other ways. As the World Inequality Report notes, the income inequality trajectory observed in the United States is partially explained by a tax system that grew less progressive. Taxes can be used to curb astronomical accumulation of wealth. That's important precisely because the wealthy use their money to amass power and influence over the political process. They've rigged the tax system in their favor. Their rewritten law, labor laws, trade agreements, rules, governments, patents and protections, and much more. They've remained public policy to serve their economic interests. This is why so many of our companies pay out enormous piles of cash to shareholders and upper management, smaller sums due to the well-educated upper class and a pins to everyone else. And it's why Silicon Valley has the gleaming skyscrapers in downtown San Francisco 
but working class communities in Flint, Michigan don't have access to water that isn't poisonous. It's why our welfare state and health uh, care system and retirement system are all in shambles, and why we're starting that uh, we're starting staring down rather the barrel of an unaddressed climate crisis. The profits and power uh, wealthy elites can find in no address in not addressing these problems are just much just so much greater than the profits and power to be found in addressing them. During the widely shared economic boom just after World War II, when U.S. inequality was at its lowest ebb, there were no fewer than 24 uh, tax brackets. The top bracket, which applied to all individuals or households income over roughly one, uh, 1,900,000 in 2013 dollars, was 91%. The point of these tax, tax rates wasn't to fund government, of course, Spending, of course, it was to put a cap on the amount of money any one person or family could extract from the shared and intermediate inter, ended, uh, ended, interdependent there we go, economic activity of all Americans, strengthening the progressivity of our tax code is a critical part of what is needed to reverse the decades-long trends in income and wealth inequality. But taxing the rich isn't enough. These extraordinary concentrations of wealth and income threat threaten to tear society apart, to restore a more balanced distribution of wealth and income. We need policies to prevent a tiny handful of people at the very top from taking so much more than their fair share in, their, in the first place. As former Labor Secretary Robert Reich has written, we need a slate of policies aimed at pre-distribution pre-distribution at least as much as we need conventional taxation and redistribution we must thoroughly reform our labor laws to strengthen unions and do away with the capricious 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 excuse me capricious coverage coverage leverage Employers wield over employees through things like mandatory arbitration and non-compete agreements. We can also remake licensing and inter intellectual property laws to cut down oligarchs and corporations' use of, the, of those laws to stifle competition and siphon money from the rest of us. And we must drive workers' wages and benefits and bargaining power back up by making it easier for workers to collect collectively bargain and, be, and by sustaining the kind of tight labor markets we saw during World War II. Through things like a job guarantee and public investment and better ma macroeconomic policy. Until we do so, the, number, the democracy deficit will leave us with an education system in which you can buy admissions, a political system in which you can buy Congress, a justice system in which you can buy your way out of jail, and a health care system in which you can buy care out of their camps oh, wait which you can buy uh, a care uh, health care system in which you can can buy and care others can't the real beyond the democracy deficit there are practical economic consequences to americans uh, to america's yawning inequality ch chasm uh, imagine uh, if raising inequality continued in a unabated until only a tiny handful of people literally did did have it all. 
the the economy would collapse as there wouldn't be enough people with income to keep our businesses afloat. Companies would would go under, and eventually only a few people would be employed. Uh, building yachts for the wealthy, working as their groundskeeper, or flying them around in their private jets. A 2015 study by the IMF already found that, quote, an increase in the income share of the bottom 20%, the poor, is associated with the higher GDP growth, while GDP growth actually declines when the income share of the top 20, uh, the, the rich, uh, increases. If you increase the income of poor people, they generate consumer consume more, spending that money right back into the economy. Conversely, we see that more income to rich results in more stock market purchases and savings. Rather than the money flowing back into the economy, so much would trickle down. For a quarter century after World War II, Americans' real hourly wages rose in tandem with increases in working productivity. This was reflected in widely shared prospe- uh, prospe- prosperity. There we go. An underlying sense that hard work and personal integrity was rewarded and that you could go ahead. Then the so-called Reagan Revolution of 1980 inaugurated an era of unbridled greed, lowering taxes for what the wealthy, cutting regulations on corporations, accelerating war on workers' rights the, to organize and earn a livable wage. Particularly after the 80s, a yawning gap has opened between opened up between productivity and wages. Productivity continues on its steady upward trend, but wages do not. They grow modestly, if at all. If the hourly wage uh, rate had followed the same growth trend uh, as productivity from 73 to 20, 2014, they would be uh, they would be have no, they would have no no rise in income inequality during that period. Where has all the increased productivity gone? It was skimmed off at the top. Back in 1950, the average S&P 500 CEO made 20 times as much as the average worker. By 2017, the average CEO at a at an S&P 500 corporation was making 361 times as much as the average worker. Since 1980, the global 1% has captured twice as much growth as the bottom 50%. 25 people have as much wealth as 56% of the country's uh, population. Just three people, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, own more wealth than the bottom half of Americans since uh, some 160 million people. Workers certainly created new uh, wealth over the last four decades, but they didn't. But they did not have to share in it because the democracy de- deficit can be found within American companies as well. Many of our firms are now uh, feudal economic victims uh, in which a small group of wealthy owners give orders to and extract value from the labor of vast numbers of everyday Americans. By helping us see government spending in a new light, MMT gives us many more options when we think of, about how we might address economic inequality and the democracy deficit, not just by taxing the rich, but by investing in the kinds of programs that will actually raise the standard of living for low and middle class, middle income Americans. Democracy means that we all have a voice, that we all have a say, and that we all matter. We need a poli- we need a politics that recognizes that and restores.
the fundamental equation in a democratic society, one person, one vote. We must restore it in the economy realm as much as the political realm because the two are ultimately uh, inseparable. Because the Constitution places the power of the person in the hands of Congress, our elected representatives, but in practice, the fiscal deficit myth has prevented Congress from using that power to fix the real deficits hobbling our economy. By shifting the discussion of budgeting from its focus on debt and deficits to one that focuses on the de uh, deficits that matter, MFT gives us the power to imagine a new political, uh, new politics, and new economy, making us from narrative and scarcity to one of opportunity. Okay, that was chapter seven. Now we go into chapter eight. I'm building uh, an econo economy for the people on page 229. Uh, it was summer 2010 when Warren Moser, who we first met in chapter one, traveled to Kansas City, Missouri to join me for a meeting with Congressman Emanuel Cleaver. Cleaver was a United uh, Methodist pastor and the first African-American uh, mayor of Kansas City. In 20, 2004, he was elected to represent Missouri's 5th Congressional District, a western central part of the, of the state that included the University of Missouri in Kansas City, uh, UMKC, where I had been teaching. Cleaver, the Cleaver, I guess, uh, agreed to meet with us as a favor to a mutual friend, a local politician who happened to be working on a PhD in my university. I'll never forget that meeting. The Great Recession from 2007 to 2009 was technically over, but the economy was still in shambles. Almost 10% of the labor force was without work, and the African-American youth aged 16 to 19, unemployment rate was nearly 50%. As Mosler and I saw it, the $787 billion stimulus package passed by Congress in February 2009 hadn't done nearly enough to end the, the foreclosure crisis and put millions of people back to work. Moser believed that Congress could essentially fix things in three easy steps. First, he wanted a federal-funded job guarantee to make sure that every unemployed, unemployed worker could immediately transition back into paid employment. Second, he called for a payroll tax holiday that would have temporarily reduced the withholding for Social Security payments taxes from 6.2% to zero, this would have made a tantum amount to a 6.2% pay raise for about 150 million Americans. For self-employed workers who paid both the employer and employee side of the withholding, it would, it would have meant a 12.4% increase in take-home pay. At a time when consumer spending was weak, it would have improved the bottom line for millions of companies as well. Finally, Moser recognized the profound strain the, the Great Recession had on state and local government budgets to help these currency-using governments weather the sharp decline in tax revenues. He proposed $500 billion in aid and distributed on a per capita basis to all 50 states, the District of Columbia and U.S. Island, and U.S. Island territories that would have protected tens of thousands of teachers, firefighters, police, and other public sector workers whose jobs were on the line as state re revenue dried up. <clears throat> we, when we walked into the Congressman's West, hold on. Someone's <clears throat> talking, I drinking water, that is. Okay, that's it. Okay, yeah. 
When we walked into the congressman's west 31st Street office, the deficit, uh, the fiscal debt stood at 1.4 trillion. Lawmakers were in full panic mode. The Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, has just published its long-term budget outlook, opening the report with the following sentence, in quotes, recently the federal government has been recording the largest budget deficit as a share of the economy since the end of World War II. If nothing was done to stem the, the tide of red ink, the report continued, in quotes, high debt would increase the probability of a fiscal crisis in which investors would lose confidence in the government. The government's ability to manage its budget and the government would be forced to pay more, much more to borrow money. To address the perceived fiscal crisis, President Obama created a bipartisan commission and tasked it with finding ways to substantially reduce the deficit. Moser and I were there to encourage Cleaver to embrace a set of policies that would increase the deficit at least temporarily. The congressman greeted us and invited us to sit. He smiled warmly as he settled into his plush executive chair behind an impressive wooden desk. Moser began by explaining that he wasn't worried about the CBO report or the federal government's ability to sustain fiscal deficits, however large they might become. The issue, uh, the issuer of the currency could never run out of money, as President Obama one, had once claimed. What was needed, Moser explained, was an ambitious mix of well-targeted tax cuts and additional spending to restore growth and usher in a new era of prosperity. Cleaver, or yeah, Cleaver wasn't buying it. America was broke. Where was Congress going to find the money to carry on Moses' proposals? The deficit was already sky high, and everyone in Congress was looking for ways to raise revenue and cut spending. I could tell he, he felt like the victim of some bad practical joke. I watched as he squirmed uncontrollably in that oversized chair. The whole conversation ran much like the chapters of this book. Point by point, Moser took uh, Cleaver through a yawning narrative that began with the government imposing a tax in order to provision itself and ended with an explanation about why, contrary to popular belief, Social Security wasn't going broke. I could tell that it was an excruciating experience for, Cle for Clever, or Cleaver. Uh, he, his body language said it all. For nearly 45 minutes, he shifted anxiously in that big chair. He interrupted. He interrupted it. He interrupted only once or twice, and, and only to have Moser respond. But he had missed an essential part of the argument. He winced as if experiencing physical pain as Moser explained that the purpose of collecting taxes is to regulate inflation, that we never need to retire the national debt, and that we should think of exports as well as real costs and imports as real benefits. I knew exactly how Cleaver was feeling because I had the same emotional response when I first encountered Moser in mid-1990s. I had also experienced what came next. With only a few minutes remaining in our hour-long scheduled meeting, it, it happened. The, the, the Copernican uh, moment, I recognized it immediately. Moser's words had clicked. It was a breakthrough we had hoped for. For the first time, Congressman was seeing the world through an MMT lens, and things had just come into focus. From that moment on, a moment he, uh, he his entire his entire demeanor changed. His eyes widened, his posture began uh, became confident, and then he leaned forward and clasped his hands. Uh, hands looked warm in the eye and softly said, 
I can't say that. I've thought back on that conversation at least a hundred times. When, uh, what was his, what was he afraid of? Why should a more realistic story about money, taxes, and debt be so unspeakable? There's a passage in the Bible, John 8:32, hopefully, where Jesus finishes a speech at the temple by telling his listeners, "The truth will set you free." Reverend Cleaver uh, had probably preached that verse to his own congregation at St. John, uh, St. James United Methodist Church. But with us on that summer day, while millions of Americans struggled to find work or fend off foreclosure on their homes, he decided that the truth could not be broken, uh, spoken, excuse me, at least not by him. Congressman Cleaver is a man of faith, but he's also a man of reason. Working in a political arena that is thoroughly saturated by deficit myths, he might have been persuaded by Moses' message, but he was not going to make a message. He was not going to become a messenger. It was just too risky. That's because there is only one acceptable way to talk about money taxes and national debt, especially in around in and around Washington D.C. Taxes raise revenue for Uncle Sam, and it's taxes and taxpayer money that funds our government. Borrowing drives the nation nation into debt. With burdens, uh, our kids and grandkids, you can safely utter any of these phrases, and you will come across as a serious intellectual. But stray from the conventional wisdom, and you'll be sidelined by an inner circle of self-proclaimed budget wonks, lawmakers, and congressional staffers, who wittingly or unwittingly spread the depths of myth. Preaching the virtues of fiscal restraint is always a safe play. Challenging these articles of faith is uh, heretical. And, uh, Cleaver understood that. MMT is not religion and is not looking for his discipline to follow some creed. What it offers is a realistic description of how, uh, of how a modern fiat currency works, along with some prescriptive ideas about how to transform that understanding into better public policy. By helping us to see more clearly what the obstacles, i.g. inflation, and aren't, i.g. running out of money, MMT opens the door to a new way of thinking about how we could run our economy. In almost all cases, it shows us that we can allow myths and misunderstandings about money, debt, and tax to hold us back. By tearing down this myth, MMT shows us that it's possible to build a stronger and more secure future for ourselves, our global partners, and future gener generations. So how do we do that? How do we get there? Excuse me. I believe that Congressman Cleaver is a good person. He wants what's best for his district and his country. After our meeting, he realized that Congress had the power to do much more, even if the CBO and the Beltway pundits were preaching gloom and doom over the budget outlook, but he's just one person. And while his status as an elected member of Congress may, may appear to him as more powerful than the rest of us, he felt powerless in that moment. He, he, his hands were tied by the deficit myths stranglehold on his public discourse. For that, the, the, to change the public's understanding of the, economic, the economy to, has a change. No member of Congress is going to bring about that change. We are. It's like my former boss, Bernie Sanders, always said, and quotes, change never comes from the top down. It always comes from the bottom up. If we're going to take advantage of the policy space that MMT opens up, it's going to be, it's going to be because enough of us re readers like, like you 
helped to shift the public debate in a new direction. Through MMT Lens, we can see an alternative and more and more helpful set of possibilities. It's our future, it's our economy, and it's our monetary system. We can make it work for us. And that will do it for today as far as this portion of this uh, podcast. Um, I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope that this persuades you to uh, become a subscriber per month for just 99 cents. Uh, that is just 99 cents a month uh, to, uh, to uh, subscribe to a podcast that gives you uh, modern monetary theory and literature, reads it off, and later the same day uh, puts up another one that is about uh, finances and uh, regulations and all that other stuff, news from that sector of the uh, financial market. And also maybe a little bit of opinion about everything else in between. Anyway, I'd like to thank you for listening once again. I hope you guys have a good weekend uh, and stay tuned for my leftist socialist news uh, on uh, Green Party and Socialist News Network. I'll let know Slack on YouTube. Thanks for listening and have a good weekend. Why are those masks, by the way?